is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Did Tony Blair lie over Iraq? Here we go again. Everywhere you look, there's a new NATO front line. Why? Is Kim Jong-un about to hijack the world? He thinks he is. And the people's storybook of the Cold War. Sir John Chilcott has spoken a year after the publication of his report into the Iraq war, saying Tony Blair's evidence was emotionally truthful but relied on his personal belief rather than facts. He told the BBC the former Prime Minister wasn't straight with the nation about his decisions in the run-up to the conflict. I think any Prime Minister taking a country into war has got to be straight with the nation and carry it so far as possible with him or her. I don't believe that was the case in the Iraq instance. He says the deteriorating security situation on the ground was ignored. The security failure in Iraq, both Iraq as a whole and in the southeast where we took responsibility, can only have disrupted not only Iraq itself but the whole balance of power. The failure of security was staring people in the face from very early on, certainly from the autumn of 2003, and far too little was done about it. And Sir John says the current generation of military leaders have told him they wouldn't allow themselves to be put in a similar situation in future. I had so many years in Northern Ireland where the troops were given extremely clear um, instructions and orders as to how to operate. No such instructions or operation guidance was given at all at the beginning of the Iraq fight. What do we do when a bunch of Iraqis come at us and we've got rifles? Do we shoot or not shoot? Well, I'm joined by former BBC diplomatic correspondent and now Master of Peterhouse Cambridge, Bridget Kendall, and as usual by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Bridget, what do you make of what you heard there? Well, I think it's interesting that we're hearing from Sir John Chilcott now. He, um, it's, it's now a year since his report was made public and he's coming out uh, with these comments on Tony Blair. He's not exactly saying, he, he, he's not saying that he departed from the truth, but he is saying that he was emotional about the Iraq war. And I think that's an interesting point to focus on. How much right do political leaders have? to rely on their emotions if that was indeed the case when they come to these very difficult decisions about going to war or not. Christopher Lee, does Sir John Chilcott know more about Tony Blair's action than he did when he gave evidence? Um, if he's taken notice, he will know more because more has been published and more has been available as well, uh, not necessarily to be published. I mean, uh, uh, one of the other members of the team, um, Lawrence Friedman, he has far more... Uh, what what was then unavailable uh, correspondence than, than than now. The other thing to remember this, and I remember at the time sitting through, I sat through 60% of this inquiry, and all the time I could see what would uh, would be John Chilcott's worry at the end of it, and it was definitely this, that when we come to do, let's say, a press conference, we have to be very careful that the story isn't just, if you like, the crucifying of Tony Blair, we want people to examine and take notice that what was actually in the whole inquiry. And for that reason alone, certainly from Lawrence uh, Friedman's point of view, the, uh, what was said immediately after the inquiry was, was relatively low-key, and he certainly wouldn't uh, have uh, spoken as he did now.
Right, well, NATO troops in Eastern Europe are ready for war. The British Army's 20th Armoured Infantry Brigade are currently leading land forces in the Alliance's Very High Readiness Joint Task Force. BFBS reporter Rob Olver has been speaking to the brigade commander, Brigadier Mike Elvis, and asked him about the growing tension with Russia on NATO's eastern flank. Uh, well, the first thing I'd say is you're right. Um, the Russian exercise programme is well understood uh, and we'll see uh, a large-scale exercise in the Western Mediterranean district take place over the coming months. Having just come back from Lithuania on Friday night, I can tell you that in my own experience, particularly the Baltic states, but also those in the, in the south, so both Romania and Bulgaria too, are acutely alive to that heightened level of exercise uh, activity uh, and are prepared for it in the sense that leave has been cancelled and people are prepared for what comes next. But what I would say is that all of the enhanced forward presence battle groups that are now forward in uh, all three of the Baltic states and Poland are increasingly settled, are all at full operating capability, as is the VJTF, and so we stand ready uh, if and when we're required uh, to send a counter-message. In your military career, have you experienced a situation quite like this? I and mean, many people compare it to the Cold War, but have you experienced a, a situation quite like this before? Um, I haven't personally, but I think your comparison, your parallel with uh, the Cold War is, is probably apposite in some ways in the sense of having forces at readiness. It was normal back then to be at readiness sat on the continental landmass of Europe. The same is now true again. It's the new normal to have multinational battle groups drawn from across the alliance forward in the Baltic states and Poland. It's the new normal to have a British-led multinational brigade ready with its equipment in barracks at short notice, ready to deploy uh, in Europe. So those parallels are the same. So I think those skills have lain dormant, and we've rediscovered them uh, over this past 12 months. I've heard you um, giving quite a rousing speech to, you, to your own troops in the brigade saying that uh, they have to prepare for war and that nobody else in the British Army is preparing for war in quite the same way that they are. What, what did you mean by that? So one of the outcomes, the strategic outcomes for the Army at the end of the last strategic and security, strategic defence, excuse me, and security review was a war fighting division um, and that is of course the third United Kingdom division of which uh, 20 Brigade are but a part and we're the lead brigade this year You'll have heard me before talk, describe us as the Iron Fist of the Iron Division, so we're at the, the vanguard end of, of the reaction force. Uh, our business is all about combined arms warfighting against a peer or near-peer enemy. Uh, that's what we trained for all last year across the brigade, uh, and that's what we stand ready for uh, to, to operate. That's what we stand ready for this year, excuse me. If there was, say, um, I don't know, a sudden threat to perhaps the Baltic states, how quickly could your multinational land force that, that you command, how quickly could it uh, respond? Well, quickly is the short answer. So in each of those states there is a NATO force integration unit, a socket into which we would plug that is ready and in, in place already. And having just come from Lithuania, uh, I'm absolutely assured of their ability to receive the VJTF and enable our uh, receipt and onward movement. Um, I expect that I would move. I would be there within 24 hours personally. Uh, should uh, the balloon go up and the force uh, for the remainder of the VJSF would move me any time between five and seven days later. So, you know, we sit, I think, about ten hours' drive away from Lithuania, currently here in Paderborn, uh, where large elements of the VJTF are ready with their armour in barracks. Uh, and so it, it would be quick. It would be days and hours, not weeks and months. 
And how confident are you that you, you have the, the capabilities, I suppose, to respond? We've had uh, General Petra Pavel, he's uh, NATO's, one of NATO's most senior commanders. He says that uh, Moscow is increasing its military capabilities at almost all, every level now. Uh, so I have every confidence in our ability uh, in the BJTF for 2017 to respond to any threat from a peer or near-peer enemy that uh, we would go up against. Um, I have absolute confidence in the men and women in the spirit that it pervades the BJTFL and indeed 20 Armoured Infantry Brigade. Um, of that I have no doubt at all. That was Brigadier Mike Elvis speaking to our reporter Rob Olver in Paderborn. Uh, Bridget Kendall, um, the Brigadier is frontline soldiering. You heard him there drawing some parallels with the days of the Cold War. Do you think there are, there, they are there to be drawn? Well, the fact that we now have, as he put it, this new normal of NATO deployment east right up in the Baltics up to Russia's borders does feel like the black and white hard power world of the Cold War. But, of course, we know nowadays we live in a much murkier world and, and just on two scores. Number one, relations between the Russian uh, president and the new US president, Donald Trump. They're about to meet tomorrow. And we really don't know whether if at the same time there might be flexing of military muscle by the Russians and NATO's response if that's the whole story or if there's another agenda and actually the Russians are seeking to build better relations with Trump to see if they could get him to lift sanctions accept Russia's annexation of Crimea allow Russia back as an equal partner or whether that's not really on the cards anymore. If you look at President Trump's speech in Poland today he's uh, sounding as though he's still quite belligerent towards the Russians. So what's the question, what's really going on behind the scenes there. And then the other thing is even if tensions are not about to subside because there's not about to be some new understanding between Trump and Putin, where is the real Russian threat these days? Is it mm. actually hard power? Or is it what people call hybrid power? Is it about Russia meddling in elections and lobbying and using uh, information warfare? In which case, of course, these exercises uh, would be a little bit irrelevant to that. Mm. Christopher Lee, um, the Brigadier would obviously talk about the readiness of troops deploy if they were needed. Was there anything surprising in what he said to you? I think pulling it together, I mean, if you look, I mean, Bridget there talking about the Baltic states and how far we've, uh, NATO has sort of moved up in sort of recognised that as a, if you like, a war ground. Uh, the other thing goes much further, Romania, um, this is a huge command problem, a command problem at a time when uh, all European armies and air forces especially are reduced inside and reduced in operational uh, ability. But the most important bit is, he's talking about here, 24 hours it takes, he as the commanding officer will move into an integration unit. Within seven days, his, his brigade is deployed. This is a transition to war of seven days, whereas before the transition to war, war phase was probably up to three months. Still to come, is Saudi Arabia bankrolling British terrorists and the Cold War? The people speak. As world leaders prepare to meet in Hamburg tomorrow for this weekend's G20 summit, one uninvited head of state has been grabbing the headlines. Kim Jong-un has been celebrating North Korea's first ever test launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile. The country claims it's capable of carrying a nuclear warhead. Well, Professor Hazel Smith is from the Centre of Korea Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Good to speak to you today, Professor Smith. How is the world world going to fix this and who's going to do it? 
Well, this has been an ongoing issue for at least uh, the best part of 30 years since the end of the Cold War, when North Korea uh, no longer uh, stopped being protected by what was then called the Soviet nuclear umbrella. So the world's had quite a long time to think about how it's going to fix this. Um, the most successful uh, that, that in terms of the last 30 years of the diplomatic initiatives was the American initiative, which was called the Geneva Agreement, which was signed in 1994 and which lasted until 2003 and which um, had a resulted in a moratorium of North Korean nuclear uh, and missile development. The George Bush administration cancelled that because it thought the North Koreans were cheating. But in retrospect, that really has been the most successful uh, attempt to keep the North Korean uh, military programs uh, in terms of advanced technology on hold. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, we don't see a US administration that's really very inclined to uh, want to engage in that sort of diplomacy again. Although, of course, China and Russia are saying in particular uh, that you need to have a political solution for what are for the underlying conflicts in the region that the the issue of the missile development of nuclear development uh, are are actually um, uh, illustrations of the problems regarding the underlying and unresolved security conflicts rather than the problem itself. Christopher Lee, uh, we, we said on this programme before that uh, behind, or you said behind Kim Jong's ambitions is to be taken seriously, to have a seat at the table. Well, he is being taken seriously, isn't he? Oh, he's very much been taken seriously. And in fact, if you listen to what Vincent Brooks, who is the general commanding American forces in South Korea, says, he says, like, is Kim Jong, uh, it's like telling the, the sheriff to get out of town. He says, we will talk, but first the Americans have got to withdraw on, on, on all the ideas they have and the exercises they take place in the troop department to take place. But you see, if all this doesn't work, the containment doesn't work, and we're supposing uh, the political situation in all countries remains the same, uh, you can actually get to a point where people start thinking of North Korea as the only superpower in town, because it's the only inexplicable part of what happens next and therefore that's what a superpower is, is somebody can hold the world to ransom if necessary. Bridget Kendall um, do you think that the, the global powers balance is changing as a result of this and what can diplomacy achieve? Well, I, I do agree with Chris that in some ways North Korea is holding the world to ransom. Um, and with President Trump, we've seen a new diplomatic style. As a, as a tough businessman, what he likes to do is to press hard with an aggressive line. And then when he comes to meet somebody, then he's prepared to negotiate. That's what he did with China when he came in. Remember that provocative phone call he took from Taiwan and so on. Um, but we know this won't work with North Korea. I mean, even the Chinese find it quite difficult to deal with Kim Jong-un. And so this attempt to treat it like a kind of business deal to say um, unless they be behave their change, their the very, very bad behaviour, something bad will happen That this is not going to cut any ice and the truth is that the North Koreans know that if there were any action taken against them, the first thing they could do is hit Seoul, the South Korean capital just south of their border and the United States has no answer to that Professor Hazel Smith, what do you think Kim Jong-un's next move will be? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a problematic question, and the reason for that is because what we see is instability at the top of North Korea now, where it looks like there are two or three, four families that are competing for power uh, inside North Korea. Although they have a strategic uh, collective idea, of course they don't want regime change, and they all consider, all the different families, the, the rival families, they all consider uh, that their best bet 
is to, whether we agree with them or not, to develop a nuclear program because in their view that is the only thing that stops military intervention from outside right or wrong that's their view but nevertheless that since the advent of Kim Jong-un to power in 2011 we haven't seen the settled leadership at the top and what that means is that uh, not just um, politics regarding the outside world can be uh, variable particularly in terms of pursuing a, a, a diplomatic route uh, but also implementation capacities at home in terms of uh, implement, implementing any possible deal that could uh, could be taken forward uh, would be a problem. This is different from, say, under the Kim, uh, under the Kim Jong-il regime, the father of Kim Jong-un, because what Kim Jong-il was, although he was as brutal as, as this regime, was an effective political manager of the then uh, also different factions, not political factions, family-related conflict factions at home. So it's a very complex situation, not just in the region where you've got six powers that are involved in different with different national interests, China, Russia, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, the United States. Um, but you've also got internal politics in North Korea. As of course, we should also mention, mention internal politics in the United States that you have to factor in. In the United States, it's most impossible to think in the current climate that you could have a serious diplomacy in the same way as the UK, I'd say, with Ireland, where it brought uh, very, very difficult factions around the table. Professor, to so it's a complicated situation. Professor, can I, just, can I just, just nip in with one, what I reckon be facts, what happens next? If you look at the technological development in North Korea in the past, let's say, eight years, seven, seven and a half, eight years, what will happen next is this. Uh, North Korea will develop a, a longer-range uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, I one uh, missiles that can go between continents. Um, secondly, it will develop a new style of re-entry vehicle, which is all important if you're going to deliver a bomb from outer space. And it will have be a multiple re-entry vehicle. In other words, it could carry 16 warheads. That's all. Pro uh, that's all. That's all easy to do. The next thing we will see a demonstration of, not in the air, but a demonstration of, that North Korea has developed a light enough weight nuclear warhead that eventually can be developed into, say, 16 warheads at the end of a missile, and it's developed it. Then what does uh, the whole world do? And certainly one, then what does America do, who's been saying, we won't allow this to happen? Professor Smith, um, the suggestion that the easing of these exercises involving the US and South Korea might be some kind of diplomatic way of finding a solution to all of this, do you buy that? Well, it happened before. In the elder George Bush's administration in 1991, uh, the elder George Bush did cancel the annual exercises after backtrack diplomacy between the various parties. And this led the way for a, a diplomatic agreement, one of the earlier ones between North and South Korea. So we've seen the Americans do it before. We've seen this as a tried and tested instrument. And in that case, it did allow some space uh, for some inching forward on the diplomatic front. So uh, we can't predict the future, or we can say that in the past it did allow for some, some progress at that time. Different guy in charge, though, wasn't there in North Korea at the time? Well, we all we, we have to take into account that um, there are there are overriding problems which have made, which have, as I said earlier, which have continued, and that we've got an underlying security crisis involving uh, um, six states, four of them the major states in the world, some of the most heavily armed states in the world: Japan, the United States, China, 
and Russia. South Korea's defence spending is increasing by about 7% a year. They dwarf the, the spending of North Korea on, on, on the military. But it's irrelevant, really, the, the, the relative amounts, because North Korea and uh, could do a lot of damage to South Korea without missiles. We saw in Rwanda in the 1990s that half a million people were killed within the space of 10 days with machetes. So, again, the issue is not so much, of course, it's dangerous and it's illegal because of the UN Security Councils. The issue is, of course, is the development of, of, of these terribly dangerous weapons. But this uh, cannot be addressed short of all-out war, which the U.S. has recently done an internal military and political review in the Donald Trump administration to show that the casualties uh, would be enormous, even in a short war. And so the, the only uh, and, and unpalatable for many in the United States uh, way forward would probably to attempt some form of very radical, proactive diplomacy. But that itself for it to succeed with the North Koreans would mean offering some form of security deal where they did not feel that the outcome of that of that deal would simply be to buy space for a military intervention. In other words, they'd have to have a cast iron security deal which they would feel comfortable with. And of course, many of North Korea's adversaries would not be happy with that. Uh, there would be many in the United States that would see that as appeasement, some form of security deal uh, in that sense, and in Japan, of course. Mm. All right, we'll have to leave it there for now. Professor Hazel Smith from the Centre of Career Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Thank you for your time today. Now, a major report by a foreign policy think tank has accused Saudi Arabia of being the biggest promoter of Isla Islamist extremism in Britain. It also presses for a government report commissioned by David Cameron two years ago into the foreign funding of extremism in the UK to be published. The Saudi embassy in London has denied the allegations, described them them as categorically false. Uh, Christopher, why doesn't Theresa May release this report? Well, because partly because she's getting a second part of the report to be sent to her, uh, and that is an update and will include some of the uh, some of the stuff that's actually been in the uh, in in this freelance report that's being uh, produced. So that's one point. The second point is the most obvious one: she does not want to upset the Saudis, and it's the it's the, it's the great sort of camel uh, sort of interest of the Foreign Office. Quite often, it's better to do nothing. And at the moment, she sees this far more importantly as a row between the Gulf uh, Council and Qatar itself. Now, they're actually saying that they want, uh, that the Saudis are leading this, that they want Qatar, uh, who owns Al Jazeera uh, News, the television news, news station, they want that shut down especially as it's sort of critical of Saudi Arabia. Um, they want the Muslim Brotherhood stepped upon. And also, they want to stop the Qatar relationship with Iran. Now, there is, those are the three things that they... Well, Al Jazeera, that, that, that's OK, they can do that. But the others they're not going to do. And therefore, it's a standoff which the, which the Prime Minister doesn't have to get involved in. How far do you think the standoff can actually go? Because there is a suggestion that should Qatar not do what's asked of it, that there may be further sanctions placed against it, which may force perhaps Britain to choose with whom it does business, Qatar or Saudi Arabia. Is that a possibility and how would that happen? Well, there are two sides to this, aren't there? Um, I mean, for, for one, for example, is that well, the Americans are going to go along with this. You can't do it unless the Americans go along with this. Then the Americans happen to have 10,000 troops based in Qatar, so that's not going to happen. Also, the uh, the blockade, so-called blockade that's running, as long as it doesn't really affect Qatar, um, then the British are all right. And there is an Eastern Bloc channel through which commercial aircraft can actually fly. It's got to be a long detour, but that's going to be there. So that's OK. They don't have to do it. They can get on with Brexit.
Now, as you've heard, we've been joined today by the BBC's former Moscow and then diplomatic correspondent Bridget Kendall, who is now the master of Peterhouse Cambridge, who's written an oral history of the Cold War. Now, this radio series and the accompanying book are the voices of the people who lived through that time. It was early in the morning, just dawn, and I was woken up with this weird noise. And there were coming military planes carrying tanks. Big belly beasts. And they were like one after the road going to Rosing Airport. Well, Bridget Kendall is still here. Just explain what we heard there, Bridget. Okay, the time is August 1968, and the place is Prague, the capital of, at that point, communist Czechoslovakia. But over the um, last, over that year, there'd been a reform movement which grew up, which is called the Prague Spring, known as Socialism with a Human Face. Um, reformist communists who hoped that they could break away a bit from the grip of Moscow and have a more lenient form of communism, which might lead the way for the rest of Eastern Europe. At that time, in the 1960s, very much under the control of Moscow. And this was the moment when the Politburo in Moscow and some other Warsaw Pact countries decided enough was enough and that if they let Czechoslovakia go ahead with its reform, that this could be the breach which might mean the end of communism in Eastern Europe. So they sent in the tanks. Mm. And that was the day. And this was one of the people we interviewed, Zdeno Tormin, who remembers that chilling moment. Now, the Cold War, the title of your book, it's the biggest expression of fear in the 20th century. What was it exactly? How would you describe it? Well, it was multifaceted, I suppose. It lasted over nearly four decades. Um, it evolved out of the Second World War, the vacuum left from the retreat of the Nazis, sharpened as the two sides developed hinterlands, the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, allies in communist China, uh, the Western world on its side, the development of NATO, not least, and then came nuclear weapons. Um, the tensions heightened, everyone thought there could be war. And then interestingly, when you roll into the 1970s, people begin to accommodate themselves to it. And you have policies like Ostpolitik, which was about East and West Germany learning to live together, and Detente, and the Helsinki Final Accord, which were the two sides trying to come together for an accommodation, a kind of tacit promise that they wouldn't be nuclear weapons. And then it exported the Cold War further globally to proxy wars, the most famous one perhaps being in Afghanistan, but these were also happening in Central America and in Africa. And then the story of the 80s is of how all this unraveled. And um, partly it unraveled in places like Poland, with the rise of solidarity, but it also unraveled from within uh, when uh, the aged Politburo began to give way and a new leader came, Mikhail Gorbachev, and his reformist perestroika ideas, which not because he planned it, but because he lifted the lid off years of repression, it all burst out and in the end the whole thing mm. collapsed incredibly uh, suddenly, actually. Clearly a huge subject, uh, 40 years to cover. What did people tell you? Was there a common thread? Well, uh, the common thread really was who we went to. We decided that very much, if you think back to the First World War and the Second World War, and we hear these personal stories of what it was like now, how much that helps us understand what it was really about. It's so much easier to digest and identify with than reading the history books and the policies and the, about the leaders and so on. So we wanted to go and find ordinary people. And actually, what you would discover is that although it's this big, amorphous, multifaceted 
conflict. The Cold War is so many dramas and mm-hmm. so many amazing personal stories. So in each program, we took roughly three people who were there at the time. The very early programs, they're very young children. An eight-year-old boy who's sent out on the streets of Athens. A six-year-old girl in East Germany who's worried that her seventh birthday party won't happen because Mm. there are protests on the streets. As you go through the years, then some of the people are a little bit older. They're university students. Uh, Like Zdena Tormann, who we heard, she was in the philosophy faculty of Prague University. Mm. But it's ordinary people. And actually what you find was they were all had... Uh, a seat, a front row seat with history unfurling in front of them and they're just as good at telling us what happened yes. there as the people who are running the show. Of course, uh, Bridget, um, with recent events, with the annexation of Crimea by Russia, um, a lot of comparisons made, is this a new Cold War, etc. What is the difference in the feeling of the people back then, that, that the period that you covered and what you think the, the feeling is now? Well, I suppose one of the big feelings of much of the Cold War was when nuclear weapons appeared, there were a lot of people who thought war was around the corner. I mean, we we interviewed one young man who was being brought up in New York at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and he remembered how his mother gathered, gathered him and his five brothers and sisters into their kitchen and said, the world may end this afternoon, I just need to say goodbye to you. Well, I don't think anybody feels like that now. Uh, it's not so black and white uh, we worry about nuclear weapons. We've just been talking about North Korea. But there are all yes. sorts of other things. There's the whole threat of um, Islamic terrorism, for example, or cyber warfare. So it's much more complex yes. nowadays and less black and white. And there we must leave it. Bridget Kendall, thank you for joining us today. And you can hear Cold War stories from The Big Freeze on BFBS Radio 2 from next Monday at 1.45. And the accompanying book is out today. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.